And I wanted to also uh, address some of the questions with regards to how how one can record a podcast, not charge any money, maintain it as free, and these kind of things. So probably a year into my podcasting, I realized that I had to make podcasts at zero sum. I'd seen a lot of podcasts out there that are looking to charge money, were looking for sponsorship, these kind of things. And the people put more money in, basically, than they got back. And then it became a kind of negative thing, and there was an interaction with the audience, which I didn't particularly like. So like I say, about three years ago, I worked out a way to zero-sum podcasting. There's no real mystery to it. I use AdSense to cover the very basic costs associated with web hosting, and the rest of that uh, is covered by things like the Internet Archive and various other download facilities. Obviously, TalkShoe is free as well. And my mantra associated with the last three years has just been basically optimizing to minimize costs and also maximize information and content, because this is certainly the feedback that I got from my uh, other live podcasts. For folks interested in checking out the other live podcasts, B-I-O-T-A dot org slash podcast. It's a, it's a live internet radio show on artificial life, which is slightly different to model railroading. However, it's all about kind of creating fictitious virtual environments and seeing how things interact. So there is some slight vein into model railroading. So I think I've covered the, a lot of the, the questions that I've received, aside from one that came from Chris with regards to putting video in the feed. And I think I probably won't put video in the feed in the future. I will just use a YouTube channel as a way of putting video on the site. I want to do experiment with the video formatting. And a lot of my background with regards to video is more kind of YouTube-style stuff, more shaky hand cam stuff. So as things progress with regards to the shelf layout, and I'll give a, a couple of updates through this particular show with regards to the shelf layout, but as things progress with that, I will put up YouTube video clips on the site. And if you're interested, go to modelrailradio.com, and that's where the YouTube clips will reside. But they won't actually exist in the feed alongside the audio recordings of this podcast. So, so folks such as Chris will not feel so motion sick through these kind of things. So the topic for this evening, and here I really have to thank Chris because he gave a lot of suggestions associated with what I'm trying to do with the show in terms of getting a, a novice listener, people who haven't laid track yet, people who maybe you know, got into model railroading in their childhood with a you know, set under the Christmas tree or these kind of narratives. And now probably as, I don't know, people in their 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s are considering the possibility of starting model railroading again or maybe just getting into it completely fresh. Chris, you had talked about some of the experiences that you had with regards to how people get introduced to, to the model railroading hobby. Would you like to share with the listeners some of your ideas about how you've seen people get interested in model railroading? Uh, sure, Tom. Um, I mean, probably the most common way of, of getting uh, children especially introduced to model trains. Uh, in the past, I've seen many examples of uh, the, usually the grandfather or uh, the uh, slightly eccentric uncle bringing the child to a hobby show or a train show uh, in the local area here especially. And the, uh, the kid's eyes just light up because, of course, it's a, it's a kinetic thing. You know, the trains are moving through the scene and, and the kids are, are going right along with them. They're, they're on the ride, on the train, uh, in their imaginations. And it doesn't matter what scale or gauge or, or anything. If, if, if the kid sees something that, that uh, strikes a chord with him, he'll, uh, he or she, I guess, would be uh, uh, taken up with the, the whole fantasy of it. But uh, from an adult perspective, the draw seems to be more in line with uh, either a love of the Industrial Revolution, uh, with uh, mining, logging, uh, machines in general, 
or uh, the desire to model something or simulate something of a of a network and a gameplay sort of approach to it where you're doing uh, either puzzle work or uh, building dioramas or you know messing around with the mechanical aspects but all of these things are are uh, draws into the hobby in one way or the other and starting out underneath the Christmas tree is just just as valid as, as any other approach uh, and any other draw and uh, most of us have uh, seen it at one point or another, the, the train under the Christmas tree, whether at our own homes when we were younger or at the homes of our cousins and, and friends. So uh, that's been, a, a, I guess, one of the, the iconic ways of, of being brought into the hobby. And in terms of shows and these kind of things, I mean, this is really a way that uh, adults can get involved as well. But I think... Certainly, here my uh, background uh, reading and research comes from the wargaming community, but they put a heavy weight on magazines, and I think magazines and the model railroading hobby are similarly uh, offered as, as inspiration and the kind of thing that one could discover. It's kind of flicking through a magazine rack, seeing a, a particularly beautiful layout on the cover of a magazine, and that being a, a drawer into the hobby as well. There are a lot of crossover hobbies too. I mean, I think of model railroading broadly, as you've described us, as a kind of cross-engineering artistic hobby, and there are a number of hobbies that fit into that, from everything from uh, kind of militaristic hobbies, building tanks, planes, these kind of things, super detailing them, uh, things like war games, but also a wide variety of, of other engineering style hobbies, radio-controlled aircraft, radio-controlled cars. I mean, there seem to be a wide, kind of broader group of hobbies. And you're right, a large component of that seems to be uh, visual. And there is certainly a large emotive component, which we're going to talk about a little bit more about picking uh, periods and regions and what kind of stuff that you actually want to model once you've made the decision to, to take up the model railroading hobby. But in terms of the distinctions, obviously uh, an adult has slightly more disposable income than a, a child, but in our correspondence, you know, one of the things that I thought about in particular was the cost associated with the hobby and the way that people may approach different areas of the hobby um, based on the amount of money that they can initially spend. You have an interest in, in live steam and these kind of things. I mean, the cost associated with that is probably far greater than a standard off-the-shelf ready-to-run train set. Do you want to talk about the, the cost associated with these various aspects of the hobby? Oh, sure. Um, I guess I'm afflicted particularly with the model railroading bug or model engineering bug, uh, especially if you think of the types of trains and scales that I'm interested in, whether it's uh, seven millimeter British uh, O scale, proper O scale, as some would say, or uh, S scale at three sixteenths inch to the foot, uh, which does not have a great variety of off-the-shelf ready-to-run components, a lot of uh, kits or limited edition or out-of-production items, some in brass, some craftsman structures and whatnot. And uh, most recently, the live steam bug bit uh, really hard as a byproduct of uh, some uh, machining pursuits that I've undertaken in uh, continuing education. So I was lucky enough to obtain a, a live steam engine uh, that was built and tested 
but only by purest chance, uh, basically, an estate sale. Otherwise, I wouldn't have even uh, dreamed of touching it because the the costs would have been um, not quite an order of magnitude more than than I spent, but certainly uh, triple what I ended up spending on the on the single locomotive. Um, but that appeals largely because there's a a hugely interactive component to to live steam that's not present let's say, in the operation of the locomotives in the smaller scales uh, with electricity uh, or um, uh, battery power uh, in some cases, where you, in the live steam, you have to maintain a constant sort of attention to the unit with the regulator and the gas flow or indeed the coal, uh, coal firing, uh, water in the boiler, um, and uh, if it comes off the tracks, it doesn't stop. It keeps merrily going, uh, and it's uh, usually very hot. Uh, so there's not a lot of places you can grab hold of it. But uh, it, it's more of a, um, uh, how shall I say this? It's much more of a, a hands-on experience than operating a train in uh, in the smaller scales. Not that I not that I dissuade that at all. I, I love doing car card and waybill operation in the smaller scales and and uh, do that fairly regularly but uh, costs for ready to run you can walk into a store and purchase ready to run locomotive with DCC and sound for uh, a couple of hundred dollars now which is frankly stunning uh, very good quality uh, high level of detail good fidelity and uh, uh, if you don't want to go with the sound and the digital you can pick up a a good diesel or indeed steam locomotive for the hundred dollar range if you're if you're in the right place at the right time brand new uh, cars uh, twenty five to thirty dollars or less if you're willing to accept um, something that might be built a little more robustly at the expense of detail and fidelity but it's there's so much to choose from I, I think one of the problems uh, facing people these days is that there's so much to choose from that they don't even know where to begin. Uh, whether or not it's an expensive hobby or an inexpensive hobby, there's just too much uh, placed in front of them, and they just don't know where to start. So as someone who has a, a background in a, in a wide variety of elements of the hobby, what would you encourage, where would you encourage people to start? Oh, good grief. Um, well, you spoke earlier about the, the emotive factors uh, involved in in making choices and certainly where I grew up here in, in southern Ontario I saw uh, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific trains on a daily basis uh, not steam unfortunately but uh, uh, the early diesels and occasionally saw Toronto Hamilton Buffalo or uh, other on on trips in the area but so when I started into the hobby after a long absence, uh, uh, being given a train set under the Christmas tree when I was a youngster and not uh, starting again until basically uh, early on in the marriage, uh, I picked a CN prototype to, to, uh, to build and uh, started collecting components um, because that's what I was familiar with. It uh, it rang to these huge lumbering beasts 
going through the backyards and uh, uh, suburban areas of the town I grew up in. And uh, there was a strong uh, feeling associated with it that, that say, from, from my perspective, a Union Pacific or Santa Fe wouldn't have necessarily uh, drawn me because I, I just wasn't familiar with their color schemes or their engines or their operations. So um, where a person could start is uh, possibly just look to uh, something that interests them in general, whether it's a particular region or era or um, uh, a style, whether it might be commuter or passenger or freight, industrial, uh, military railways were, I remember complete sets of those being available from either Mantua or Tycho at one point in time. So it, it's such a personal thing that um, it's like buying uh, buying a book for someone or trying to buy somebody clothes or jewelry. It's, they're all very personal uh, personal interests and it's hard to, as an outsider, to to give a specific response but look for something that you're interested in or that, that brings you some joy or some, uh, some level of uh, uh, curiosity that you want to explore further, uh, such as industrial operations, very cute little diesels and uh, gas mechanicals, uh, steam in some cases, operating extraction lines or logging or lumber or whatnot, single-purpose things that don't take up a lot of space and and uh, will give you a, a great variety of, of tasks to undertake very quickly. Your bench work, your electrical, your scenery, backdrop painting, um, assembly of cars, tuning of locomotives, possibly installation of decoders, uh, or, or just straight DC is fine. Uh, you can do an awful lot with straight DC uh, if you're uh, a bit clever with the wiring and... Uh, there's uh, there's no end to it really. It's it's so open ended. It's it's actually a bit scary in some ways. Certainly, certainly, and I think this is my my interest with regards to recording at least these early shows in model rail radio was to explore a number of the issues that you've touched on. I think the idea of of something that's close to you, a region or a period which you grew up in, or these kind of things, are, are very strong uh, emotive interests, obviously. And as I speak to an international audience and my experiences from looking at what is available uh, with the regional Australian railroads that I've had um, experience with, it's very easy in the US and to a certain extent Canada as well to pick up trains that are regional, UK, parts of Europe, some parts of Asia. Um, but what's interesting is also the number of folks, I mean, for example, the uh, model railroaders that I follow in Australia have also gravitated towards the U.S. Uh, railroads, perhaps because the availability uh, of these lines is, is considerably easier than the Australian ones, and similarly U.K. railroads in Australia. So it's interesting with regards to the kind of emotive issue with regards to the region, and you've also talked about the time frame a bit. But you touched on space very briefly, and I think this is something that's interesting because for your even your larger gauge railroads, you don't necessarily need a lot of space. And this was somewhere in the kind of matrix of of cost and space 
that you can even even with larger gauges do quite a bit in a relatively small space. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I can make a, a personal comment on that. When I started off again in the hobby, I uh, made a I made a mistake. I as I put it, I rather inflexibly associated small space with small scales because, of course, I'm living in an apartment with rather limited, uh, you know, room space. Turning over a whole room to, to the hobby would have been um, impossible, well, maybe difficult to live with, let's put it that way. So I picked N scale, and uh, unfortunately that led down a rather unproductive, unfulfilling, unsatisfying Path because you know when I looked at in the end when I when I was completely disillusioned with it I, I looked at it and said well what did I actually want to achieve in the hobby and what was I interested in and it was sound and and digital and uh, interesting things that uh, that weren't available in N scale uh, some industrial equipment and some some stuff of different eras so steam engines don't run very well in N scale. You know, that's a personal opinion. Some people will disagree with that. Some of the Kato stuff certainly runs very well. But uh, a lot of the, the earlier things, uh, the River Rossi and, and whatnot, were with the uh, NEM standard flanges on them were, were quite poor as far as I'm concerned. And uh, that demanded going up to a larger scale. And I, I ended up skipping right over HO scale and uh, hitting S um, because partly because you have to scratch build a lot of things, and I, I do fancy building, uh, building items rather than purchasing them. So um, I, could have done, I could have gone up to G-scale, as a matter of fact, and done a very small industrial switching layout, uh, perhaps with uh, an 040 or an 060 uh, gas mechanical or, or uh, hydraulic uh, locomotive, uh, pulling V-tip wagons, in a peat bog or uh, coal mine or uh, lead mine or some some such, and done amazing levels of detail, and everything could work because you can start using scale nuts and bolts at that level, and uh, all your doors and windows can work, and anything that has a hinge in it can work, and anything that's supposed to slide can actually do it. You can add animation and motorize things and synchronize it all with computers or, or sensors or even ladder logic and, and relays and solenoids. So it's, um, you know, that would have been tremendous on, on even just uh, the top of a bookshelf or uh, uh, in the space of a Murphy bed or, or some such. And it took a couple of years to realize that. And then you're, you're, you've committed uh, money and, and time that you could have spent on something else. Although you do learn, you, you, you learn many skills and the smaller scales, uh, especially assembly and, and uh, finishing skills. So uh, and none of it was, was really wasted. Um, regrettably, a little bit of time that I could have spent more productively, I guess, in the long run. But it's, it's a hobby. It's not a job. So I, I shouldn't really get too upset about it because in the end, it's all fun anyway. It's, it's all good stuff. With regards to G-scale, 
I mean, we have a we have a local store. In fact, our closest model train store is almost exclusively G scale. It has some ON30, um, but it, most of it is G scale. And I have looked at the G scale engines because they have ridiculous sales on them, um, probably twice or three times a year. And in terms of a shelf layout, if you were to do a switching shelf layout with G-Scale, you would still need probably at least 15 feet in order to make it reasonable, wouldn't you? Well, um, yes, in some ways I can see where you're going, yes, but it depends on what you're, what you're doing with it. If you were to model, say, the inside of a brewery, uh, like uh, the Guinness Brewery in Dublin, which had an 11 and a quarter inch gauge or an 11 and three quarter inch gauge railway in it, or um, there was a Dominion Geolite had a uh, they were doing explosives work. They had a a very small gauge railway in their in their uh, buildings out west, uh, or in, indeed any of the the industrial uh, or processing mills. That had small railways. They're they're very compact, very tight radius curves, uh, single car turntables, uh, human powered stuff. Uh, you can fit an awful lot of track in in that sort of uh, footprint of a building, let's say. And while G scale typically is what around one to twenty four scale, so um, half inch to the foot. You know, uh, a fifty foot building is twenty. Five inches? Not yes. too bad. Yes. You Have know. you been to the Guinness Brewery in, in Dublin? I I came very, very close. I was in I was in Belfast and uh, they had a tremendous um uh museum outside of Belfast, a transport museum that had uh lots of railway equipment from the area, including narrow and broad gauge prototypes, uh plus uh, the local Model Engineering Society has been on site for 30 years with their steam engines, live steam engines, offering rides to the public on Saturdays. So it was, uh, I didn't make it to, to Dublin. I wished I had, but, you know, it's, I'll, I'll get back there someday. Yes, my wife and I honeymooned in Dublin, and the Guinness Brewery is absolutely huge. So I, in terms of doing a, a layout based on that, even even at a, a narrow gauge, I, I still think you would need a substantial uh, area in order to cater to the um, the rail system that existed within it. It was quite difficult to comprehend because it's one of those probably four city block style buildings that are also at least two or three city blocks deep. Uh, and I can imagine that it probably would need its own rail system in order to move things around. But it's interesting with regards to the breweries, uh, because certainly in the UK and in Australia, the size of a brewery is probably the kind of thing, aside from the Guinness Brewery, which you could fit on a, a shelf layout in, in G-scale with quite a degree of fidelity. And I think through our correspondence, what I found interesting was your discussion of if you have a smaller environment to construct a, a model railroad, be it just the inside of a brewery or something like that, the level of detail that you can put in terms of uh, finish, in terms of tiny detail and work on it progressively is considerably greater. Do you want to talk a little bit about this dynamic? Uh, yeah, the, um, I guess what I wanted to say about that particularly was um, your 
your element of selective compression is going to come come into play. I mean, you're not going to model the entirety of of uh, the UP system or um, the entirety of uh, the Illinois Central in a basement. Uh, no matter how big your basement is, you just you can't do it. Even if you did it in Z scale, the um, the thing about working in any scale and to work within you, the limits of your space or monetary constraints is to pick the elements of the diorama or scene that are most representative of, of what the function of that uh, industry or, or um, era that you're trying to represent. Uh, if you have a passenger, if you want to model passenger equipment, you don't have to model all of the stations on a line. You could model one station on a line and it could be to such a high level of finish that all the lighting on the platform worked and there was bits of trash and um, you know flickering lights and little cafes and whatnot. And it would be the trains passing through this highly detailed scene that would give you your, your uh, enjoyment. Um, and everything could go to staging from that. It could simply be, uh, as functionally, it could simply be a passing siding at a at a loop uh, in front of the platform and otherwise uh, everything is is hidden out of sight and it it comes up one at a time and you'll say well that's the down train from from uh london and this is the up train going somewhere else i probably have that the wrong way around i'm not uh super up on the mainline practice in the uk but uh from a if you're modeling an industry you'll have the, the, the source and destination sort of affair where you're picking up the raw materials and moving it to the processing point and from the processing point to the shipping point and taking empty wagons back to the raw materials. So depending on how complicated the cycle is, that can take anywhere from five minutes to a couple of hours and could, uh, could be on multiple levels. Uh, there's nothing to say that the industry, uh, such as maybe a slate quarry or... Uh, a mine that that uh, all of the operations occur on on one level they could occur on multiple levels and you could build a a tall layout rather than a wide layout and have little areas of the mine or areas of the building feeding stuff to vertical shafts which can be modeled just as well an incline or an elevator can be modeled not significantly more difficult uh to do than and modeling a uh, a set of rails and wheels, but um, oh man, now I've got all these ideas rolling around in my head here. <laughs> well, that was in large part why I uh, why I started the show as well because I thought the ability to to have an active narrative was probably going to lead to not only the audience's inspiration but also my own. You've discussed. I mean, you have you had initial experience with regards to N, and then you moved to S. In terms of shelf layouts and small table layouts, can you talk a little bit about the the track laying and planning and the kind of process that you used yourself in order to work out where the track was going to go on your layouts? Well, uh, in the case of the the uh, first N scale layout, I, I I would join a club in the area, and we had an N-track layout, so I built an N-track module, which, you know, while it was an ability or the opportunity to do your carpentry skills and painting skills and other construction skills, laying track and, you know, learning about the cork and underlay 
getting the flex track straight and set properly at the right height and no kinks and no bumps. That was, that was um, satisfying in some ways because you have a completed product at the end of it, but it's unsatisfying because functionally it has no purpose or no, no uh, continuum without the rest of the layout being present. So in, in and of itself, it, it, was, it was only a place you could display things and, and photograph them on when you weren't with the rest of the crew. So uh, the construction of an N-scale layout was, uh, it ended up being a two and a half by five foot layout, which is eminently portable in, in, uh, in N-scale. And uh, while I spent probably weeks and weeks and weeks doodling various track plans using templates and uh, rudimentary CAD software and, and cutting bits, out of, uh, bits of paper out and shuffling them around, or indeed sectional track and shuffling it around on the floor and trying to come up with something that didn't look too busy. Uh, the the layout that that came from it was ended up uh, resulting from having to do a presentation at the club on uh, wiring practices because of my background in electronics. I had uh, some decent soldering skills, and everybody wanted to know how to wire up a layout and how to uh, solder the track and how to. Uh, operate a two two cab control in DC, so I made a little control panel, and the the layout was a simple oval at its heart with passing sidings, um, uh, switch siding for uh, st- uh, stub traffic, uh, which was controlled by the turnouts power themselves, uh, reversing loop because everybody was interested in how to wire up a reversing loop that that didn't force you to do all sorts of um, wild switching maneuvers uh, while you were in the middle of it and having the train reverse underneath uh, suddenly while you're switching direction. Um, And uh, that ended up being a great little layout because it allowed me to get the track techniques down to the point where I had nice flowing track work uh, with the flex and the turnouts and making sure everything was nice and smooth. But uh, it, was, it was a bit of an organic process coming up with the track plan. And the problem with the self-contained or continuous running layout that I've always had is that ultimately it, it looks unrealistic uh, from an operation standpoint because it's, you're chasing your tail. If, if it's too small and your trains are of a certain size, you can see both ends at the same time and it seems to be uh, running after itself. But uh, cleverly scenic and uh, with view blocks and other details, you can end up with a, quite a nice uh, functional either operating layout or diorama uh, for display of, of your uh, high-quality images, uh, sorry, images, uh, high-quality uh, rolling stock and, uh, and locomotives. But uh, later on, uh, the Freemo bug bit, and I ended up building some modular segments for a Freemo style layout in S scale. And again, while you run into that problem of uh, it's no good without the rest of the layout, or you can't do much without the rest of the layout, uh, working in the larger scales allows you to tackle problems that you can't do effectively in the smaller scales. Um, and handling becomes much more of a uh, a joy than a pain and allows you to to experiment with the detail level of the track itself and uh, the roadbed and subroadbed 
bringing that up to uh, to match the quality of the uh, the locomotives and rolling stock that is running on top of it. Um, I'd love to have a home layout here in the basement. Uh, there's no there's no room for it at the moment because we've just moved in and everything's everything looks like a, a bomb hit it. It's quite chaotic in here. Uh, but with the uh, obtaining the the live steam locomotive, I have an opportunity to build out in the garden uh, come the springtime. So there'll be uh, again a process of design and negotiation for right of way and and uh, some real meat and potatoes construction with uh, probably pouring some concrete and and uh, moving things around with shovels and and wheelbarrows and all that good stuff come the springtime. So that's going to be an interesting departure from the smaller scales right there. So I have two questions. You, as, as you go through, I, I amass a series of questions, but the two that stick in my mind currently, how large is the uh, sections on an S-scale sectional? And the second question relates to creating a, a garden layout for all seasons. I mean, obviously the, the temporal changes that you have, particularly with regards to the effects of rain and snow on a, a garden layout. So if you want to talk to the S-scale first and then talk a bit more about the garden layouts. Well, I'll, I'll, talk, about, I'll talk about modules in, in general and S-scale will fit in there. Um, the, the current uh, prevailing traditional way of doing modules is typically a two by four foot rectangle of, of flat plywood uh, as part of a a large rectilinear uh, layout of continuous run um, design. So basically a large loop uh, with one or more tracks on it that are typically offset from the center. So every module is pretty much the same size. You can plan your your layout displays at local shows and, and shopping malls very easily because everything is uh, is the same size unit, very much like a domino or a Lego block. Um, the newer way of doing things that, that uh, uh, many people are adopting, especially those with a um, uh, specific prototype in mind, uh, ha is the Fremo style uh, developed in, in Europe uh, where a single track runs down the middle of a a very organically shaped module which can vary from say six inches in length to well as long as you can carry um, and any any shape any alignment usually with very broad curves uh, in order to to make the best appearance with the long cars especially things like auto racks and heavyweight passenger cars um, and really the the sole requirement in that case is that the extreme ends of whatever group of sections of your your module uh, they must comply with the standard electrical and mechanical interface but otherwise the bits in between are, are completely up to you um, many groups that that do this sort of uh, freeform layout uh, don't have a continuous run capability. It's a point-to-point -point or point-to-yard, point-to-loop uh, arrangement in some cases. Uh, not all of them, but uh, the, the goal for a lot of the groups is to have 
their overall display look in a, uh, a u- uniform manner. So they'll pick an, an era, they'll pick a locale, uh, so that their ground foam, uh, ground covering, base scenery material, ballast, um, typically no skyboard or backboard in, in the case of the freeform layouts, but uh, the era of the structures, uh, the coloration that they use for um, the roads and other scenery is, is uniform so that when you're, you're going from place to place on the railroad, it's very evident that you're traveling uh, in through a contiguous scene. And uh, each person will largely endeavor to model something that is from the prototype. So some particular store, a uh, particular siding, a crossing, a bridge, uh, river scene, uh, urban scene from a real place at a real point in time. And it, it, it's a tremendous difference from the uh, traditional modular approach that most clubs do, which is as long as you have two or three tracks running down the module, you can have anything you'd like anywhere. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're modeling. It can be a circus, a baseball diamond, uh, an urban scene, uh, stuff. Very often you find cliched uh, dioramas of uh, burning buildings or uh, maybe an airport with a, an aircraft kind of half in the air uh, on, a, on a transparent rod or something. Um, but there's no continuity in those in a lot of those layouts except for the train itself passing from a uh, very distinct scene to, to very dis- distinct scene at the edge of the, the modules. So uh, f- to answer your question directly, an S-scale module in, in the case of, of what my group does is anything you want uh, as long as it meets the electrical and mechanical specification. It can be six inches long or 60 feet long. That certainly gives a, a wide scope. And I think even for doing shelf layouts that then become sectional layouts, I mean, there's a lot of potential within that. And in terms of the European-style layouts, do they do all over the world or are they typically modeling European-style uh, rail situations? Um, interestingly enough, the, the Fremo group in the in the UK, or sorry, in, in Europe and the UK, they have uh, separate scenic uh, subsets, I guess you'd call them, of the, of the standard protocol that they've developed that cover both uh, European and uh, North American uh, prototypes. So the practices that you'd have on a European railroad for tie spacing and uh, the rail height and your right-of-way treatments with drainage or fenced right-of-way uh, would vary significantly from the North American practice. And they have two distinct approaches for it which is uh which works very well and it's uh, stunning to see the size of these some of the layouts that these guys put together that literally fill um basically up to aircraft hangars full of of snaking coiling railroad it's uh, it's quite stunning they have some quite huge layouts that we wouldn't even approach here in north america not from what I've seen in the press anyway. Fascinating. Fascinating. And moving on to my question with regards to, to garden railroads, 
I mean, you're you're setting out to design this railroad uh, in in your garden, but in terms of the issues with regards to temperature, rainfall, these kind of things, how does that affect your design process? Well, uh, it affects it, I'd have to say, in a negative way, because now I'm going to be worried about the effects of uh, frost and the ground heaving and therefore buckling any of the track substructure that I, that I erect. Uh, the effect of, of cold weather, we, we do get cold weather in my area up to, well, the worst that I can recall has been minus 47 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, we get hot weather. The worst that I can recall is 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you know, and that that plays merry hell with any sort of wooden or metal or stone uh, foundations that you've you've put together because everything expands and contracts at different rates. Uh, the garden railways of the people in the area that I've seen uh, vary anywhere from uh, built on grade with ballast to uh, to uh, elevated railways uh, put up on fence posts and uh, uh, with adjustable. Um, cant boards underneath the track so that if something heaves over the winter time and through the spring they can actually uh, tilt the track bed underneath the rails back into uh, horizontal alignment uh, so there's a myriad of approaches that that I have to look at I'm not really familiar with what this area that I'm living in right now is we've we've only been here for about four months five months and haven't experienced a winter here yet, so I don't know whether the ground gets really swampy and wet in the in the springtime, and all my pilings and uh, bents will will sink or twist, or everything runs off quite nicely and it stays quite dry, and and there's really no problems. So I'm going to look at a at uh, a couple of rigid points uh, where there's going to be concrete posts. And I will have adjustable points in between, probably uh, pad built on grade, uh, patio stone and, uh, and uh, post base on grade that I can shim and pack almost like the prototype does in the spring when they have to go in and uh, shuffle all the ballast around and uh, get the lining bars out and lift the, lift the rails or shim under the ties and it's it's going to be an interesting an interesting procedure, uh, not the least of which reason that my wife has a completely different idea of what a garden railway looks like than I do, and it's her garden. So I'm I'm going to have to tread lightly and and uh, make some compromises uh, purely for aesthetic reasons and not necessarily for operational ones. So I have to take her her considerations and her desires into account in this instance because it's it's not my it's not my space it's not the cupboard under the stairs it's it's out in in the public view certainly and i think i think spousal negotiation is relatively critical irrespective of uh, whether you were doing a shelf layout or a garden layout anyway but certainly i've, I've not spent long periods of time but i've spent a bit of time in the local uh, garden railway place and they have a consultant who works full-time. Apparently, there are actually a number of garden railways in Las Vegas sufficient for uh, at least a fellow and an assistant to work on them full-time uh, and make quite a comfortable living from it. And Good Lord. 
What, what I found particular, well, Las Vegas is very strange. There's no real middle class. There's a kind of serving class that works in the casinos and what have you. But there are also extremely wealthy folks who come here to retire. And behind a lot of these gated communities, you do get the sense that there are probably folks with garden railroads that uh, operate. But Las Vegas has another extreme in terms of temperature, although we probably have five or six days below freezing in a year. The heat uh, in particular can get quite great. We have um, typically 100 days over 100, and when, when I say that, it's always you know, in 130, 140, particularly in the sunlight as well. And my sense of looking at the G-scale um, track that they sell is that the uh, gaps um, between the, the tracks, the joining points, are, are very flexible. And I think, as you say, with regards to uh, seasonal ballasting and these kind of things, there's some of the affection that people have that maintain uh, garden railroads, even out here in, in Vegas. I think particularly with regards to desert landscaping and things here, you can have quite... Uh, quite effective garden railroads uh, modelling, you know, any of the uh, southwestern deserts in the US and potentially other deserts as well. And looking at the kind of stuff that they sell, there's certainly a, a Colorado uh, narrow-gauge component to it. They sell quite a few, um, I'm not even sure what the scale would be for G-scale narrow-gauge, but a lot of shays and these kind of things. Um, but also a, a fair number of uh, Union Pacifics and other things that you'd assume going through the... Um, the Arizona and New Mexican desert and these kind of areas too. So it is a scale that appeals to me. Would you be would you be modelling in G for your garden, or would you do a would you do a different scale? Uh, interesting, you should ask that. Um, the locomotive that I purchased is regaugeable between 45 millimeter and 32 millimeter gauge, and it's built to a linear scale of 16 millimeters to the foot. Uh, which, if I was using 32 millimeter gauge track, would make it two foot gauge, which is common for a lot of the UK industrial and uh, indeed the um, War Department, World War One War Department light railways, which is my primary interest in in uh, in this scale. So it's it works out instead of being one to 24, it works out to one to 19. So it's slightly larger uh, than say, standard gauge uh, uh, railway. Well, standard gauge on 45 millimeter gauge track would be 1 to 29, uh, which Aristocraft and I think um, there's another large manufacturer that makes standard gauge trains in that, in that proportion. Uh, a lot of the Bachmann stuff is 1 to 24, which would actually be 42 inch gauge on the 45 millimeter gauge track. And I think the chaise and other logging locomotives that you've seen would be built to a scale of 1 to 20.3, which, which would make 3-foot gauge out of the 45-millimeter gauge track, all of which mathematically is awful confusing to the newcomer. And uh, G-scale, uh, as, a, as a catch-all, is probably the most difficult thing for people to come to terms with because all of these scales run on the same gauge of track, for instance, the 45 millimeter gauge of track. And the European pro prototypes tend to be, for instance, meter gauge. So they're looking for 39 inches between the rails and they come in at 1 to 22 and a half instead of 1 to 24. It's all, 
it's all rather awkward, frankly, especially the mixing of of metric and and, uh, imperial measurements in the same reference, but that's a holdover from the very early days, and it's never seemed to have gone away. Certainly, certainly, and I think these ratios are uh, difficult to understand unless you actually see the scales of the trains. And I mean, for people listening in who may not be even sure of the difference between HO and N and S in terms of, of practical scales, would you recommend that they got out a ruler and actually drew up what the track would look like? How how would you recommend for uh, someone who's, who's new to the hobby to get a perspective on what these scales actually mean? Ah, brilliant question. Um, the only way that you can get a true appreciation of the differences in the scales is to physically see them yourself. And for that, I could recommend uh, what's the most common car probably that's been on the rails in the last 100 years would be the 40-foot box car. I think they made more of those than any any other car ever. And uh, if you were to pick up uh, or get yourself somehow contrived to get yourself an N-scale 40-foot box car, an HO 40-foot box car, uh, an O-scale, say, from Lionel or uh, Mike's Trainhouse, and a G-scale 40-foot box car. I left out the S deliberately because it's rather difficult to find one uh, in a hobby shop. There are very few hobby shops that carry S-scale. I happen to live within two hours of one of them, and there aren't any more that I'm aware of in the whole country. So I happen to be lucky that way. But uh, if you had the four most commonly available scales, that is N, H, O, O, and uh, and G, and you could see them side by side all at the same time, it would give you a more clear representation than any other way to to immediately see the, the, the difference in the heft, the difference in the uh, the size, the relative sizes, and give you an idea of... Uh, of what you could fit in the space you have. If you, if you only have a shelf, um, you're, you're not going to put a mainline G-scale layout in, but you could probably manage something in HO, maybe even O-scale if you were doing a small uh, uh, beltline transfer or, or uh, stub industry with, with hidden staging, maybe going into a closet or another room. Um, so having that 40-foot boxcar sitting in front of you in in four or five scales, uh, leaving out Z and TT and uh, double O scales um, for reasons too numerous to to mention in in this podcast, I think. Um, That'll give you a great idea of what mainline trains are. But uh, as we talked about earlier, mainline trains aren't the only choice. If you're doing an industrial or logging uh, operation, you've got... uh, a lot of four-wheel cars, not not bogey co- uh, wagons or uh, uh, eight-wheel cars, but four-wheel cars that might only be 12 feet long. Uh, even old uh, UK mainline trains, the uh, the goods wagons, the coal wagons, uh, fish vans, um, uh, dry goods, they were all in the 20-foot, 18-foot range. You can fit an awful lot of those uh, on a layout um, 
compared to 40 foot and 50 foot or or high cube uh, box cars or auto racks. You can fit a ton of of older cars of standard gauge uh, width. But as the era goes back, as you go back uh, in the 1920s and uh, in the 1900s, when the when the frames were still wooden frames, they had short cars uh, uh, that weren't very tall. Uh, so you've got the same track gauge, uh, but in 10 feet, instead of having 10 cars, you have 15 or 20 cars for your train size. So uh, there are, again, many facts. And if you're doing an industrial scene with six-foot uh, side tippers or or uh, dump cars, you could have 30 or 40 cars in that 10 feet. So it all depends on, on which, which prototype you're going to go after, what the application is, what the era is. Uh, that all plays a factor as well. But again, there's, uh, here we come, come to the, the plethora of choices. There's so much to choose from. And as I, as I made mention to you, I believe in one of my emails earlier, was um, I didn't even know anything about narrow gauge until my re-entry into the hobby. It wasn't uh, it, it wasn't something I was ever told about or made aware of when I was younger. So it was a whole new aspect that that came uh, came to light, but only after uh, a significant amount of time had been spent in the in the mainstream of the hobby. Omar Little in the chat briefly uh, talking about HO and I think doing your boxcar comparison with the view that of the percentages that are of the various scales I mean the first thing ideally is if you have a, a local hobby store where you can go and see N, HO uh, and potentially a, another gauge then that's an ideal situation. I have in front of me a BNSF railway tie uh, which is about what I don't know maybe six, seven inches long. Um, and these kind of things with regards to scale are also very useful if you get a perspective of how big this is in your hand versus the the model representation of the tie. It gives you a, a good indication of the, of the breadth of scales that we've discussed. In terms of the boxcar, though, really probably two or three um, scales initially would give you enough of a perspective uh, to see which you liked. I'm always captivated by planning a, an N-scale layout and then progressively collecting cars and looking at them and thinking, this is just absolutely tiny um, compared to even HO. And I think visually you're right. You need to be able to hold things in your hand and actually have a, a sense of the size. But also, I mean, you discuss little things like sound, for example. And certainly I found within sound is absolutely impossible. And as you mentioned also, uh, particular engines don't work particularly well in the smaller scales. So all these things need to be taken into consideration. And as you've described, even with a relatively small shelf layout, you shouldn't consider yourself limited to N and H show just based on that. But in terms of things like availability and cost for someone starting out, probably, as, as Omar noted, H O or N, uh, is, is the place to start. I know we've had some email discussion with regards to conventional wisdom, Chris, but I mean, in the view that people can 
make mistakes early on, do you still consider that they should start with N or HO or one of these more uh, easy-to-access scales in terms of availability of products and these kind of things? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that, that there's very... I can't really argue with somebody starting off in N or HO simply because uh, if you were to thrust somebody into the hobby and they were told immediately that they had to build all their boxcars and, and uh, lay all their rail themselves and spike it all down individually and uh, nothing was available except for this one type of engine or these two types of engines, one steamer, one diesel, it would really kind of kill their enthusiasm pretty quickly. And, you know, while... I guess North Americans especially, we, we have this sort of instant gratification uh, mindset in a lot of ways. You want to be able to have some some positive feedback from the experience right away. And in H or N scale, you can walk into a shop, now subject to limitations of your budget and, and time, you could theoretically walk into a hobby shop, uh, pick up Cato or Lifelike or, or Bachman tr Easy Track with integrated uh, roadbed. Uh, you could pick up a power pack, ready to run engine and cars, uh, a plan book for sectional track, uh, take it all home, set it up on a, a ping pong table or a four by eight sheet of plywood, uh, tack it down lightly with with the spray mount adhesive or or uh, the odd spike or wood screw. And literally, you could be operating a railroad the same day, and you could have some experience and get some feedback and find out, oh, I really like this, or I, I geez, this this really doesn't interest me, or, uh, and in, in the case of it didn't interest you, it, you you're not completely uh, out of uh, out of the water here. It's it's a common item. You could you could sell it on to someone else or gift it to someone else if it if it didn't turn your crank, so to speak. Uh, whereas if you've got something very esoteric and you brought it home and it was going to require 40 or 50 hours to assemble the first locomotive and the two minutes into the job you lost one of the driver's springs across the room in the shag carpet, it's, it's going to kill your, your interest pretty quickly. Um, so being able to walk in and pick up uh, scenic details, uh, ready-made structures, uh, ready-made and ready-to-run equipment of varying degrees of quality. You can spend a little or you can spend a lot. Um, yeah, N and HO, definitely that's going to be the vast majority of, uh, of introduction level that somebody's going to get. It's, you're going to walk in and pretty much see that uh, in, a, in somebody's house, under the, under the Christmas tree, uh, at, the, at the local hobby show, you won't see very often uh, S-scale, unfortunately for me. Uh, you will see three-rail O-scale, Lionel, um, and uh, the older uh, uh, Ives and uh, Bing stuff, which the collectors have, the tin plate collectors. They're quite active. But again, that, that seems to be the collector operator. People like to have those things on display and also run them with all the vintage accessories as opposed to building... Um, a diorama or scene operationally, it's it's more of the, um, well, how shall I say this, the 
the department store Christmas display in the window, all the accessories, uh, the animated features, and uh, still bright and shiny and new. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's a it's a valid approach to the hobby. It's not. It's just not what I do, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, as you progress, as you gain experience, as you talk to people in in the local clubs. At the hobby shop, you're going to run into other people who are buying equipment or, or building stuff or who have questions of their own. And you'll quickly learn what you like and dislike. And the hobby press, whether it be Model Railroader, RMC, uh, Narrow Gauge Gazette, uh, the online publications like uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist or uh, Model Rail Cash Show or indeed this show here, will introduce you to new concepts and new ideas that you can then do research on thanks to the internet. The internet's a wonderful place to find prototype photos and photos and discussions of other people's layouts and their problems and solutions. Um, it, it's Again, you, you don't know where to start, but you have to start somewhere. Make a choice. Uh, go with something you know. Go If you grew up uh, in an area where... Uh, uh, the Southern Pacific ran, and you see the the Black Widow uh, engines in the, in the hobby shop, and that that tweaks your interest. Then pick up uh, a pair of those Jeeps and some cars, and and start having some fun with the hobby. And as you learn, you'll refine your choices and and grow and do other things. You'll you'll find what what fits and what works for you. And I think the only the only media that you didn't actually describe is, is books. And certainly with my shelf layout, I've been looking on the internet and using resources like Wikipedia. But really, books have also been quite inspirational to me. I mean, there are a number of pictorial books and also uh, various aspect books. I have one on uh, industrial freighting and these kind of things, um, particularly with regards to regional railroads. With my own shelf layout... So it would be a relatively small switching layout, but I wanted to use two uh, prototypical railroads that met at junctions in order to put it on the, the layout that I'm working on currently. So having written down my interests of it being in the southwest, because that tends to be my modelling interests, I found a number of uh, prototype railroads that I thought were in the southwest and then related to the south of Massachusetts or the west of uh, of Indiana or these kind of things, it was quite strange. The the terminology associated with these various railroads didn't actually uh, relate to the U.S. geography, but in fact related to particular state geographies. But I think reading uh, actual physical books and the Internet provide a lot of resources, particularly when you're looking to, to tune whether you're going to do a, a prototype, specifically a proto-lance or even a freelance. We haven't really talked about freelance railroads at all, Chris. I mean, there's, there's someone approaching the hobby that may not have a particular regional interest but may want to model a particular time. The ability to create a, a freelance railroad, particularly if you're just dealing with uh, looped track and uh, uh, occasional turnouts and these kind of things, you can actually create your own narrative around that. What, what's your own view with regards to starting with a freelance? Uh it's it's a bit controversial. Um, I think that that probably a freelance railroad now to do a 
to do a freelance railroad the right way, and I'll qualify that in a second, is probably the hardest thing to do in the hobby. Um, and uh, my qualification is this. If you have a prototype that you follow and it's documented, either because you're living down the street from it and it's unfolding in front of you as, as you live, or it's something like the Denver and Rio Grande, which has been uh, analyzed and, and recorded and, and mulled over and, and uh, modeled for, for decades to a high level of, uh, of fidelity, uh, it's, it's easy to copy something that exists that you know works because it's demonstrated through the historic record that that's the way it was done and um, that's all the cars were painted a certain way. You knew when the service records were done when they changed the truck from an arch bar to a, to a roller bearing truck or, or whatnot. If you're modeling 1937, you can get it right down to the almost the day and almost the hour in some cases. If you're freelancing a railroad and you're doing it on general practices, um, both from a, an aesthetic standpoint, paint schemes, uh, the architecture of their, their freight houses, their, their passenger depots, uh, you, you're kind of, uh, unless you have a very thorough knowledge of how the prototype works in, in all aspects, you're going to get something, let's say, wrong. Now, okay, nobody's going to lose a limb if you, if you put uh, gable ends instead of uh, barn ends on your, on your depots. But um, if, you're, if you're trying to just throw a bunch of track together in a, in a yard and you don't actually understand how a yard works, uh, what each the purpose of each track is and and how the routing of the cars work and the the process behind it you can't design a yard because you have no basis to to uh, to uh, draw on uh, copying a yard from either an ICC map or a Sanford uh, uh, the fire insurance maps uh, Sanborn I beg your pardon uh, fire insurance maps uh, it's it's there you can go ahead and, and do it, and uh, the photographic record from the area will, will show you exactly how it looked, and it'll probably work uh, right, right off the bat. Freelancing is, is tough to do, I, in my personal opinion. It's much easier to copy something that's already out there. I agree to a certain extent, but I think the availability of, of software uh, in order to lay out track, I mean, the yard example is a perfect example that basically you can create a narrative associated with a track where you can design a yard within software and create industries that would never exist in a prototype. But I think the the means to actually do experiments, be they just uh, working through software or actually putting track down and running cars across it and getting a sense of what the functional purpose of any given yard is, it's probably a, a discipline which is, is beneficial in and of itself, irrespective of whether you know uh, exactly how to, to model buildings. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about um, the structure component of model railroading in, a, in another episode of, of Model Rail Radio. But with regards to the yard example specifically, 
I think even within physical yards, there are a number of mistakes that have been made that may have been historically altered, and certainly reading the um, publications, looking at other people's layouts can oftentimes give you quite bad examples of how to construct yards. So it's difficult to really get a sense of if this is a skill set, does the real world or perhaps the model railroading hobby offer exactly what one needs in order to have it? I'm certainly more sympathetic to freelancing because I think, particularly for folks starting out, I mean, my wife is a good example of this. I, I made a, a table layout and down the downstairs of our house and she looked at it for a few minutes and she has a wide variety of fantastic railroads that she wants to put on there. And this is, you know, there's, there's a whole element of fantasy uh, railroading, be it to Thomas the, the tank engine slash train or, uh, you know, a wide variety of kind of Disney or other themed railroads that exist out there. And really in these environments, it's all fantasy. But certainly reading a, a number of articles and looking at the successful freelancers that existed out there, some of them are not just a mishmash of areas, but also a mishmash of historical perspectives, what-if situations and things which probably don't adhere quite as strongly to the, the kind of it has to be in some way connected with a prototype discussion that you've given. So I certainly would want people to consider a, a kind of greater degree of freedom. And this is, this is the kind of grey area of proto-lancing, which is... Uh, in part, and I think there's probably, you know, there's probably percentage guides either way with regards to what actually it constitutes a freelance and what constitutes a proto-lance. But I, don't, I think I agree with you that studying real railroads from the top down and getting a sense of what a yard is is probably very beneficial. But I don't think necessarily modelling things that are 100% real. I'll give you an example with regards to the Las Vegas approach that I took. A lot of the uh, areas that I looked at modelling were just far too complicated to actually enable me to do um, in, in a, a table-sized layout. And I think this is what you've talked about with regards to selective compression. But also, in terms of the physical yards, there are a number of mistakes which would have meant single car kind of operations where I was moving single cars backwards and forwards forever in order to move them out of very tight turnouts that were constructed. And you certainly find this in, in real railroads. They're not necessarily designed for fun. Uh, and I think there's probably, there's probably quite a degree of potential for even someone starting out if they're just throwing track down. And we really haven't talked about the dynamics of track as well in, in tonight's show, but maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in the future. But, I wouldn't necessarily want to poo-hoo freelancing even to start off with just as a means of getting a, a set of skills. And as you say, if there are yards in the real world, I would also take it to, with a grain of salt in terms of modelling them specifically for you know, a fun switching layout or even a layout that pro pro gave a, a certain degree of kind of switching problems that one may want to play with uh, for a number of hours on end. I mean, in terms of your own... You say that you do... Um, I'm assuming with, with layouts in your area, you go and, and switch on these layouts. I mean, in terms of switching problems, are all the layouts based on real railroads, or are, they, are there some of them proto-lancers, or are some of them freelancers even? Well, um, uh, before I answer that question, I, I, I want to get a, an idea that I just had. I, I don't want to give anyone the impression that the first layout that you're going to build is going to be the perfect layout and everything's going to be right on it. Uh, model railroading 
building model railways is 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 an iterative process. It's uh, it's something that you get better at, and the bigger your project that you set for yourself, the more likely that as you progress through it and move from one end of it to the other, you're going to improve your skills. You're going to go back and say, oh, I don't like what I did at the very beginning. I'm going to redo that portion and bring it up to the same level as, as what I've now uh, been able to achieve. And uh, you may realize even partway through the project, say, oh, I don't have the track alignment correct. I really should have done this over here. It should be a much broader curve and it should be single track instead of double, so you change the, the lay of the land, alter the scenic profile, and uh, you may start off with DC and go to command control later. Uh, you may want to go DCC in the beginning and realize that you don't need that level of complexity for what you want to achieve. It's not something that you, you make a decision up front and then everything stays static. You, you have a premise at the beginning and you explore that premise, and as you get better at what you're doing, then then you'll modify that, and you'll you'll find new things that interest you, and maybe a new scale or a new gauge or a new era, or uh, just a different locale with the same equipment that you had already. It's not going to be something that you're you're stuck with. You don't have to say, oh, I've made this decision, I'm not going to change because that would be admitting that I did something wrong. For goodness sake, go ahead and change it. It's not. It's this isn't supposed to be uh, a, a chore. This is supposed to be something that you enjoy and is fulfilling and and gives you some reason to to uh, to uh, to grow yourself, grow your skill set, and grow your uh, knowledge base. Certainly, but with regards to the layouts that you operate on, are they based on prototypes, or are they proto lancers, or are some even freelancers? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, the there are three layouts that I operate on on a semi-regular basis, uh, and all three of them are based on prototype practice uh, to a degree greater or lesser. Uh, one of them is based on the slate quarry railroads in in Maine. Uh, it's uh, Trevor Marshall's uh, ON2 layout that I've been helping him construct off and on for a couple of years now. And uh, it's, it's now in its second iteration, uh, being much larger than it was before. It was uh, from, a, from a central yard location through a, a rural setting and to the slate quarry where there are switching of uh, uh, flat cars and uh, supply cars in and out. Uh, but it's all based very, very closely on what actually happened in uh, on the Monson Railroad in uh, in Maine in the uh, 20s. Uh, another layout that I operate on regularly is uh, is called the Moira Valley, and it's based on the railroads that were in and about the area where my parents now live out uh, east of here. Uh, again, in the 1910 sort of time frame, and uh, a lot of the early uh, pre-consolidation era um, railways that, that that eventually became Canadian National are represented on this this layout. Uh, oddly enough, the layout is an S-scale standard gauge. It's not an American Flyer style tin plate layout. It's it's scale layout. 
and uh, the fellow has been building most of his equipment from scratch or heavily kitbashing uh, what few commercial offerings he could get in that uh, in that time frame. But again, it's a car card operation and timetable, and uh, it's based on the practices uh, in and about the Grand Trunk, uh, Canadian Northern, and uh, Canadian Pacific of the time frame. The third layout is uh, an ON3 layout in uh, very small, uh, G, sort of a G shape uh, to the overall plan. It's point to point, not continuous run. Uh, matter of fact, all the layouts are, are point to point. I hadn't thought of that before. They're they're not. They have no connecting continuous loop uh, that you can let a train run on unattended. Uh, the ON3 layout is uh, based in Colorado, and it's a fictitious branch of uh, of the Dendron Rio Grande uh, with the equipment down to the the bolt and nut of uh, the Denver Rio Grande and uh, their operating practices, their signals, their building structures, and uh, the the freelance aspect of it is is purely the locale. Uh, it's it the branch itself didn't exist. Um, the other ones you're moving from a from a, a prototype town to a prototype town. Uh, to a prototype quarry or a mill or a, uh, a mine that all existed uh, in that area at that time. Uh, but yeah, protolance, they're all protolance layouts, uh, very definitely. And uh, I find that compared to the layouts that I've operated on that were purely fictitious, that is to say that... Uh, that uh, they were a hodgepodge of, of structures and a hodgepodge of equipment, rolling stock and locomotives. I would say there was a, a significant level of satisfaction, uh, higher satisfaction on the protolance layouts than the freelance layout, the purely freelance layouts. Um, I have operated on layouts that are prototypical to an amazing degree, and uh, they're a little scary actually because there's no real room for uh, deviation from the prototype practice there's no uh, there's no fantasy buffer there's no it's hard to describe uh, everything everything is as it was uh, you're it's almost like you're repeating a script in some ways and there's very little room for variation uh, which isn't to say that the experience itself wasn't tremendous, but I, I think the protolance ones have been the most uh, the most interesting so far. Terrific, terrific. Well, Chris, I'd like to thank you for for coming on Model Rail Radio for our third episode, and I think we've we've touched on a number of the topics that I'd like to continue with early on in this uh, in this series in terms of the variety of choices and options available for uh, bottle railroaders that are just starting out and you've, you've given a wonderful introduction to some of that so thank you very much for for appearing on this evening well it's been a tremendous pleasure tom uh i've really enjoyed talking about the hobby uh i wouldn't consider myself an expert um i'm more much more of a dilettante i kind of stick my hand in in everything and uh 
I have a lot of fun doing that. But uh, if I'm, yeah, if I can add anything to the the general knowledge base, it's my pleasure to participate. Terrific, terrific. Well, our next show will be November the sixth at six thirty Pacific. For folks who want to participate, as Chris has this evening. You can get in contact with me, Tom at modelrailradio.com, modelrailradio, all one word. We have a mailing list as well where uh, Chris and I participate discussing uh, potential future topics, and we certainly brainstormed a lot of the topics this evening through that mailing list. So if you're interested in participating in the mailing list, go to modelrailradio.com. And yes, this is the listener-driven show, so folks such as Chris, people starting out, we had two folks in the chat room who contributed various questions and points through this evening's show, which was wonderful. There is a chat room that you can participate in as well if you'd like to uh, ask questions to the participants or suggest topics midway through the show. So I'd like to thank Chris once again for, for calling in and chatting, and thanks for folks for listening in. I'm Tom Blabalay in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good night.